0: Hi, I'm Philippe. I'm Justine. And this is the Boards Network podcast. This show is an open-ended exploration of the people and practices behind the most effective boards of directors. Private companies rule a big part of the world around us, and boards dictate their strategy and decisions. We believe that by changing boards, we can change the world. Ben Levin founded Level Equity, where he's a partner and co-CEO of the firm. He has been an investor in growing media, software, and services companies since 1997. Prior to Level Equity, Ben was managing director at Inside Venture Partners and previously held positions with Mentmore Holdings Corporation, the private investment arm of a New York City-based family office, and in the mergers and acquisitions division of Salomon Brothers. Ben graduated from Harvard University with a concentration in government. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss about your prior experience and board of directors with us. We're super excited to have you on the show.
1: Well, I'm very excited to be here and and hope it's
0: helpful. So let's start with the beginning of your career. So after a two-year stint in investment banking, you joined a large family office. So what was that family office focused on and what was your role there?
1: So, the family office had a diversified set of business activities. They started as a real estate development business and had begun probably a decade before I arrived to start to do distressed corporate investing. And by the time I joined in the fall of 1997, they were focused on those other activities plus had what you would characterize today as a lower lower middle market industrial growth buyout business. And I joined as an associate. And for the four and a half years that I was there, I was an associate and then a vice president providing analytical deal support, mostly for Tuck and M&A at two portfolio companies, aerospace and defense machining and electronic subsystems, manufacturer that was a roll up and uh, consumer packaging or injection and blow molder that was also a roll up. So I spent a lot of time doing financial modeling and analytical deal support and helping them try to identify tuck-in acquisitions for those in addition to a number of other portfolio companies.
0: Did you have any meaningful board experiences at this firm, not necessarily as a board member, maybe assisting some of your colleagues or anything like that?
1: I did. It was not in a traditional board format. So they owned the businesses that they worked with. They did have boards. I don't honestly remember how much of this was done in an official versus an unofficial board setting, but because I was relatively involved with the portfolio and M&A, and for one of the two portfolio companies, a plastics injection molder called Precise Technology, I got to be the point person on the sale of that business. I, I got to spend a fair bit of time with the management teams of the portfolio companies, making or helping them to make decisions on add-on M&A, potential financing strategies. And so I saw a lot of deliberation over those types of topics. And I think I learned probably I was relatively young. So, you know, I, I joined when I was in my early 20s and I left when I was in my late 20s and had a lot of responsibility for a young person. And the management teams were significantly older in their 50s and 60s. And so I learned a lot about how to work with um, teams. Uh, I learned how valuable it was to have good relationships with management, to understand and to advocate in many ways for their perspectives internally. Um, I think one of the things when you're a junior person that will enable you to develop good relationships with managers is to be a good translation engine for the things that they're focused on back to your senior team. I think I did a, a fair bit of that to advocate for them, to help understand how they were viewing, whether it was a sale process or a potential acquisition, um, and to share those perspectives. You didn't always obviously agree with what management wanted, but just to be a translation engine. You got, as the junior person or the young person um, on a board, I wasn't on the boards, but as someone that got a, a chance to spend a, a fair bit of time with the senior managers and the, and them as board members you get to hear a lot about how they're thinking about things. And so it's a, it's an, it's a kind of a unique opportunity that in, in the private equity industry you get as a relatively young professional. And so thinking about the ways in which you can do that effectively, efficiently, respectfully with people that are often you know years or decades your senior uh, it, it was a, val- a valuable learning skill and I think is something that y- you need to learn how to do well in this industry where it helps to, to do well.
0: Would you recommend young folks starting their career today to join a firm where that's maybe a little bit more under the radar, not a very famous brand like the Sequoias or Goldman of the world, you know, a place where you can get more experience and be in direct contact with experienced people? Or do you regret that? And do you wish that you would have joined a Sequoia or an inside venture as early on in your career?
1: No, listen, I took a very non-traditional path to, you know, to where I am. Um, I took a year off. Uh, after I worked uh, as an analyst, investment banking analyst at Solomon Brothers, and I pursued a personal passion, which was you know sports and fitness, um, I worked as you've identified for a family office that you know very few people had heard of, and I, I don't regret any of it. I'm I'm super happy with where I am in life and career, and so I, I don't look back and wish I'd, I'd done things differently. Certainly from a career perspective, um, I think in many respects you know I got lucky. Um, I certainly got lucky in that first job in. You know, being in a small dynamic situation where there was a huge amount of responsibility given to me as a young person, which for me was very positive. Um, I didn't um, have a lot of managerial oversight. I got to do a lot of things and make mistakes on my own. Um, And for me, for my personal growth, that was um, super rewarding. It was really motivating. It was scary at times, but it was a very positive dynamic. And Um, I I don't want to criticize going a traditional path because there are a number of amazing firms that people would be lucky to join as young people. And I think that could be an equally great path. But I I do think there are elements of working for small, less uh, traditional private equity firms or situations where you're doing private equity type investing, um, whereas a young person, you may be able to get more responsibility. And for me, that was the case. Um, And I think it served me really well as I grew where I didn't have a very traditional set of experiences when I joined you know, a more traditional private equity firm when I joined Insight. Um, but i had had a lot of varied experiences. I'd gotten to do a lot of complicated things that I, I might not have had I joined a more traditional firm. So I had an awesome experience with it. I, and I think there are lots of different paths to success, um, not just the traditional ones. So yes, I'm a pretty big advocate. And I try when people ask for advice on how to get into private equity, to have people take a you know, a slightly broader, have a slightly broader aperture to the ways in which they could develop the skills that would ultimately allow them to do what they ultimately want.
0: So after that, you joined a growth equity firm focused on technology. It was the early 2000 tech bubble just burst. And so, how was morale in technology investing at the time, and what convinced you to stay focused on technology investing at that time?
1: Again, um, there was a little bit of happenstance. Uh, I, you know, I I had to find another private equity job. The family office that I worked for sold off the portfolio companies uh, in their growth buyout platform and took their real estate business public in a REIT, um, and left me wanting and needing another private equity job. And I found that uh, at Insight, working for um individuals that I'd come to know over my experience at the family office, one of the senior partners uh, at Insight had been um, a banker previously and had spent a lot of time with the family office. And that's how I, I got to know them. Um, and so I chose I, I thought technology was very interesting. I didn't have a traditional software investing background. One of the businesses that we worked with at the family office had tried to spin out and commercialize some technology. And so I'd gotten to meet some venture capitalists, but I, I didn't have a, a, a very traditional background for joining a growth equity firm. Um, but I knew some of the people. I had a ton of respect for the organization. Um, and it seemed like an incredibly um, successful and interesting group of people and fund. And, fun. and um, I think that functionally answering your question, when I joined in late 2002, There was, uh, they were coming out of a slower investing period, which I think was emblematic of the market. People, I think, were cautious. Uh, And over the six and a half years that I was there, you know, that pace increased relatively rapidly. Um, But yes, it was a relatively slow period. I didn't have consternation over technology as an asset class. I thought software and technology broadly were a rapidly growing asset class and, um, had confidence that it would be a good place to invest, but also candidly, not, a, not an inordinate amount of perspective on, you know, which slice of private equity, growth equity, venture capital buyouts was, you know, was the best long term bet. And so in many respects, I think I got very lucky getting into what has been um, a very rapid growth industry, investing in software businesses, growth equity for software and other technology businesses has been a very rapidly growing asset class. I think a fair bit of that to be, you know, to be candid was, you know, I got lucky and I got into that market at a very good time.
0: What are the key things you learned at Insight that enabled you to become the investor and board member you are today? And how did that shape the strategy that you chose when you founded Level Equity?
1: So I think I I learned a ton. Um, You know, one of the things uh, that you get when you work at a large, uh, rapidly growing uh, growth equity firm uh, like Insight is you see a ton. So the velocity of uh, both the business model because uh, Insight focuses on software investing and on sourcing their own transactions. And so they see a very, very large number of transactions. I got to see a huge number of transactions, work on a lot of deals, invest in a lot of businesses, really understand how both software companies and classic growth equity investing works, how sourcing models work, how to sell, how to interact with managers. Um, and I and I got to take, um, I think, by and large, private equity is an apprenticeship business where you are able to, as a young, um, mid-career and, and, and growing investment professional, watch people above you in board settings and transactional settings um, and pattern recognize things that you think are effective, things that you think are not effective, things that are aspirational, things that are not, and build a version of your own both investment judgment and style. And so I, I, you know, in the seven years that I was that I was there, I got to do a lot of that, to to see a lot of transactions, to work with a number of different, you know, mid-level and senior investment professionals. As I got more senior, to observe things that I thought were worked really well, to observe things that weren't as good a fit for me, and and all of those things informed a desire to build a firm and build a culture. Um, and that was embedded in, in in why we left to found Level was a belief that we could build a great culture and we could build a firm focused on what I'd characterize as the lower middle market of growth equity, of, you know, a slice of the world that had been occupied by firms like TA and Summit and Insight and to some extent, Technology Crossover Ventures and General Atlantic and Warbur Pincus. You know, many of the large cap providers of growth capital and buyout capital to software and other technology businesses, we saw there being an opportunity to build a, a, a franchise firm in that, in that slice of the market that a number of people had and continued to succeed out of, nested with a desire to, you know, to run a business.
0: Switching gears a little bit and focusing on what you're doing at Level Equity now. So you're typically the first investor in your portfolio companies. How is your model different from traditional venture capital?
1: We like rapid growth technology and software businesses, as do venture capitalists. The vast majority of the way our business works is fairly different. We um, are generally investing in businesses that have raised little to no capital, that have been bootstrapped by their founders, and present a very different risk reward than traditional venture capital. And that's probably most poignantly evidenced in our return distribution. Um, We lose almost no basis. We've lost 2.2% of basis since inception. So we very rarely lose money. It's also very unlikely that um, we'll have a, a 100x. We're not taking will it work, won't it work risk. We're generally providing growth capital to businesses where if you picked up their balance sheet and income statement, you'd have a very positive reaction, like a very interesting income statement, a $5, $10, $15 million business with almost no invested capital, where they've already identified a market segment, they have a product that's working, they have happy customers and a growing customer base. And the capital allows them to invest more in R&D and sales and marketing resources to continue doing something that's generally already going well, as opposed to investing in something that is much more bleeding edge or theoretical and a product that is being built for a market that may exist as opposed to a market that does exist
0: typically when mid-stage VCs invest in a company, the board is already formed. There is, you know, maybe another VC already on the board, maybe an independent director. How do the boards of the companies you back usually look like at the time you invest, since most of them are bootstrapped? So I assume there is usually no other investor on the board when you join, right?
1: That is correct. So uh, a number of the boards that uh, exist when we invest are very small and very unsophisticated. We can often invest in businesses where we and the founders are the only folks on the board. Sometimes founders will have put friends or uh, folks that have business acumen on their boards. And occasionally we will invest in businesses that have other investors. Sometimes they're private investors, friends, friends and family investors. Occasionally they're um, generally non-branded venture firms. Um, so there are businesses that we invest in, um, many that have boards. I'd say the sophistication of those boards is generally lower.
0: And how do you approach value creation to help these people improve the way their board functions after you join?
1: Take that question in two parts. So there's how do you build the board and then how do you approach value creation? And I'll, maybe you asked for a couple of examples when we last spoke and I'll and I'll use maybe two. One is a company called Picasa, where we were the first institutional investor it is a vacation rental property management business. It's now the largest vacation rental property management business in the U.S. When we first invested about four years ago, the board was myself and the founder, Eric Brion. Today, the board has three investor representatives because they've raised follow on capital from Riverwood Capital and Silver Lake. They have Brian Gill, who is an independent director, who is the chief product officer at Nordstrom and was very senior in technology at Expedia. And they added a gentleman named Matt Roberts, who was the CFO and then the CEO of Open Table before it was acquired by Bookings Holdings for $2.5 billion. So, over a four year period, built a traditional board with independents who have both industry and product expertise and a layer of new private equity firms that have funded the business as it has continued to scale. From a, a value creation perspective, Much like the base investment model, most of what we do, I think, is relatively intuitive. We help folks think about professionalizing management, hiring senior managers. You'll see new CFOs, CTOs, VPs of sales, VPs of technology at Vicasa. You've seen all of those. So, rapid growth in people to, to address a really large market opportunity, hopefully, increases in sophistication with which. They process and evaluate opportunities, the opportunity to deploy capital, to deploy human capital. Um, we help them think through M&A. Bikasa has been a very acquisitive business. They had a, an organic M&A capability, um, and we've helped them prosecute some of their larger M&A. But I think of the vast majority of what good growth equity firms, and certainly what we aspire to do, is to be a, a strong, execute, provide capital and execution support to continue Increasing the sophistication with which folks are prosecuting a known, large, already appealing opportunity.
0: How important is vertical expertise at the stage we invest in? And I'm asking the questions because some VCs will tell you that you need as few industry veterans as possible in order to foster innovation. For example, I think PayPal only had one or two payment experts in the entire company, including their general counsel. So what's your take on vertical expertise on the board besides management, of course?
1: I think it can be wonderful. I don't think it's always critical. And I think vertical expertise only is less appealing than vertical and functional expertise. And we have experience in adding folks that have both business, I would characterize there being you know, two or three types of things you will look for from an independent board director. One would be vertical expertise. They know the market really well. One would be functional expertise. They understand how infrastructure software companies or how application software companies are built, or they understand one modality of a software company incredibly well. They were historically involved in development or sales or marketing or customer success or their financial in nature. Um, And then, Another axis would be just a well-established, successful senior manager that has managerial capability that is aspirational for the managers of the company. So one of the things, especially with um, non-traditional managers, founder CEOs who have not been CEOs of other businesses, is to put independent directors um, when we do, when we don't. We don't always do this. We only do this when it seems to be a a really good functional and personal fit um, where those CEOs or those founders can look to a manager and and see someone who has done things that they want to achieve. And so they can get advice and guidance and mentoring from those independent directors. So it's a combination of all those things. If you can get all that that in one woman or one man, that's amazing. Oftentimes, you'll get a subsegment of those. And generally, you want that to be a good you know, positive cultural relationship fit with the folks running the business and the other board members.
0: How do you assess the cultural relationship fit?
1: Not super easy. Um, You generally, you know, allow for some time for exposure, meaning, you know, you'll introduce a potential independent director to a founder and they'll meet several times and talk about the business. And it tends to actually relatively quickly be apparent if they, they think they like each other and get along. Um, and then over time, you know, that can prove out positively if and after they join the board and it can prove out negatively. We've had a, a lot of success, but we've also not done a huge amount of it. We don't enter a investment with a perspective that within six months or a year or 18 months, they have to have an independent director or that ind- independent directors are critical to our success. Um, you know, we've sold two dozen businesses. I think we've probably had four or five businesses where we've added Independent directors, so uh, it's really on a case by case basis, and only where there's a really positive fit and/or a specific perception of need.
0: What kind of board member are you? Would you define yourself as hands on or hands off? Do you think different styles work for the types of companies you're chasing, or strategy defines board style?
1: It's a great question. You know, I'm probably you know captive to my own bias. Uh, I like to be a super active, uh, very engaged board member. I'm on a lot of boards, but. Um, I aspirationally want to be the person that's always available. Uh, I try and get as involved as folks will let me. I also don't have a, a, a ton of pride of authorship. So if there's something that I don't know or don't think I'm good at, I'm much more likely to, to try and recommend someone that I think could be good, whether that's internal or external. And I try and be incredibly transparent and probably blunt to a fault. I, I think um, having people understand when you disagree, why you disagree, how you think about those disagreements and having, even if they're tough conversations, good tough conversations. Um, those are actually the hallmarks of a, I think, uh, of an effective and an efficient board. I think when people are not having an ability to talk about the areas where they disagree and are trying to do things behind the scenes, those things are are more challenging. So um, try and be super involved, you know, available, helpful, um, and transparent would be would be the things I, I want to be and, and hopefully am.
0: And how do you find the right balance between being supportive of management teams and keeping them accountable?
1: So it's a very good question. I think it's very hard to do well. I think there's a there's a natural tension. People, you know, one of one of my favorite expressions is people want what they want, um, and so you know, this is obviously different if you're a minority investor versus if you're a control investor. And we do both, and so there's there's some differences. But in general, I'll go back to. The comments I made when you you asked what type of board member I was and or want to be. And I think being very direct, not being passive aggressive, not not being tricky, not trying to back people into decisions. I hate being on the other side of that. And I try very hard not to have that be emblematic of the way in which I interact. I have strong opinions. I'm, you know, I'm free with them. I offer them. And there's some scenarios where that's all you can do. You offer an opinion and uh, Set of managers or a, a board don't agree, um, and and the best thing you can do is provide that opinion. And if you turn out to be right, not gloat and say that's you know, in this situation it may have made sense to do it a different way. But, but I think a lot of it comes back to being very very transparent and direct, and 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 quick on that. And what I mean by that is not not saving a perspective for later, telling people. What you think? hey, I have some consternation here. This worries me. We've seen that not go well. I'm I'm okay to try it. I think that's that's not a bad idea. But here's the things I'd look for as early detection signs that thing, things might not be going well. Style, you know, you know, I'm a big martial arts and boxing fan and they say styles make fights. Styles make boards too and styles make board interactions. If you say something in a in a direct fashion, you know with full acknowledgement that you may or may not be right and you try and be humble and reasonable, doesn't always work you know you can get a terrible reaction from people in all slices of interaction, whether it's board or other um but you have a much higher chance of success if you're consistent you're direct you're blunt, you're honest um and you're very willing to acknowledge when you're you know when you're wrong which if you're a good board member and you have a lot of suggestions and opinions, you will inevitably be, be wrong plenty of the time.
0: One way to improve board's decision-making is to improve the information they have at their disposal. Some of the companies you back are still very early in their journey and may lack the right processes and systems to generate and report the right financial and business information to the board. Could you tell us how Level Equity approaches this and what value it can create when joining the board of a company?
1: Absolutely. Big focal point. You know, One of the things we are both Investing in underwriting and assuming is generally a, a, a big increase in the sophistication with which people analyze data and report data. Um, you know, in our investment documents, we have a form of reporting, which is what we would like to see from companies in terms of most of what we do is software investing. And so you'll see a lot of traditional SaaS software metrics investing in team, hiring VPs of sales, investing in technology, whether that's Marketing automation, traditional CRM technology, ERP, and general ledger systems, things that allow for people to have access to and amalgamate data in a way that, that allows them to analyze it and then present it are all part of what I think good rapid growth businesses should be doing in that five to $25 million growth range. And so you're doing a combination of those things, helping them identify professional managers who focus on reporting, folks like CFOs. Um, helping them identify professional managers uh, and or elevate managers inside their business to be VPs of sales, marketing, customer success. And generally, professional managers or folks that are building careers in those areas um, come with sets of frameworks that they like to use from a reporting perspective, and then putting in place underlying technology reporting packages, whether, again, it's a customer success platform, or it's a, a general ledger ERP system so that the data that they're collecting is available and able to be reported back out. But there is a relatively small number of key metrics for most of these businesses that very early on folks focus on and continuing to enhance the sophistication with which people evaluate those things. And those are customer acquisition costs, lifetime value, retention, gross and net retention, aggregate revenue growth. The nature of you know recurring versus non-recurring revenue, a number of reasonably well-understood things that, again, while businesses at a small size may not know in detail, they generally have a good sense of. So just continuing to to focus on enhancing those those paradigms.
0: Do you use consultants to help, or do you do everything in-house?
1: Most of this is is honestly done just as part of you know. The folks on the investment team interacting, um, whether it's in a, you know, in a board format or not, we do have a CTO who spends a lot of time with the portfolio companies working on you know, evaluating and helping increase uh, the technical sophistication with which they're building product. We have an operating partner who focuses on finance. And as we've talked about, we will help uh, in certain situations have independent directors or previ- pre- previous executives interact with the teams. Um, But more often than not, it's it's actually a relatively simple exercise. Here's a set of metrics that we think are important to track. They start to track those. They start to increase the the team and hire uh, functional experts in some of these areas, implement technology, and over a relatively short period of time, if they're not audited, get audited. Um, And those things tend to rapidly accrue to a reporting package and a a data awareness that allows for pretty good decision-making.
0: Are there things you would recommend entrepreneurs start doing very early to facilitate future evolution of their data infrastructure as they grow?
1: I think hiring folks focused on the finance function, whether that's a controller or a VP of finance, um, being aware of the industry that they're in and what um, reporting metrics are. There's a lot of venture capital firms and investment banks and market constituents now that publish not just what the metrics are to track, but what the different ranges mean. I'm not sure I always agree with what those ranges are or you know, what determines what a good versus a not good versus an exceptional business is. But there's a fair bit of available data on the types of things folks should be tracking and hiring folks that have experience in similar businesses earlier on um, can be transformative from being able to articulately speak about everything from, you know, market size, addressable market through down to traditional um, income statement or, you know, balance sheet and cash flow metrics.
0: We're arriving at our final questions already. What's your pet peeve as a board member
1: passive aggressive people who uh, are backing you into a decision, whether that's a manager or another board member you you know what they want they're not being transparent about what they want or there's a long presentation that's got a conclusion but you're not told what the conclusion is um, I'm much you know again from my earlier conversations of of how I want to be aspirationally. Um, I like it when people are really direct. We had a bad quarter because of X, and here are the things that we think we should focus on, or um, we think we should do Y, and we're going to show you why we believe we should do Y. Um, I find to be much easier to receive than um, having a vague sense that you're being led down a path, but not knowing exactly what that path is or where it's going.
0: do you handle when this situation is when somebody's being passive aggressive during the meeting? Do you have any tips to change the conversation?
1: Again, I'll sound like a broken record. I'll try really hard to say. I think what you're saying is X um, and then out of band, you know, offline, you know, try and provide in a, in a you know, a positive way. Hey, I you know, you'll do a lot better with us or with me if you you know if you disagree if you just tell me you disagree and tell me what you want and tell me why you want it and we can get to the meat of the conversation instead of there being much in the way of setup doesn't always work doesn't I mean again you know that's a that's a life goal not just a board goal um, and you know passive aggressive is alive and well and uh, in our current society and so that doesn't always work but I you know I think it's the most it's the most likely way to solve that problem. is Just address it. Try and get people comfortable with the fact that you're reasonable and will react to a direct ask in a positive and proper and reasonable fashion. And so the necessity to manipulate doesn't exist.
0: Is there a private company you'd like to be on the board of, not as an investor, but more like a, an independent board member? Let's say a company that's sub $5 billion because otherwise everybody mentions Berkshire, Microsoft, and Amazon. So is, is there one that you think you could learn a lot from?
1: So I'll give you three, um, and they're they're pretty random. So one's Rogue Fitness, um, you know, one of the larger, you know, American-based, uh, I believe Columbus, Ohio-based creator of fitness equipment for a lot of different types of modalities, most poignantly CrossFit, and I'm not a big CrossFitter, but early on, we almost invested in CrossFit and um, have heard lots of positive stuff. I know nothing about the business, but I'm a fitness fanatic, and so I think it would be and I think they're running what strikes me. I don't know anything about their numbers, but is an excellent business. I think their products are super well made. Uh, and I have a lot of personal passion. So I think that would be really interesting. And then more focused on areas where we invest. Um, you look at companies like Epic, which is a very large business in the healthcare space, or the SAS Institute, which is a very large private um, data analytics uh, and, uh, and software provider. And um, just a scale in which we don't see much in our investment paradigm very large private businesses controlled by their founders both of which are are known to have you know a hybrid of unique and um, you know very positive aspects of their culture and the way they approach their markets um, probably both relatively non-traditional i think a lot of folks would say those are non-traditional businesses or or run in a non-traditional fashion and so i think would be super interesting really intellectually stimulating um, obviously, all three of those businesses, you know, from what I gather, very, very successful from a financial perspective. Large businesses doing very interesting things in their in their spaces, and so those types of things. When you're a, you know, I'm kind of a an invest an investment nerd, uh, and so I think it would just be it would be really interesting
0: for all the bootstrapped SaaS entrepreneurs out there. If you were one of them today, and if Level Equity did not exist, are there specific individuals you would want on your board? Assuming they don't you know need to raise capital and so doesn't have to be an investor necessarily
1: yeah i won't I won't give you a specific names, but I'll give you characteristics um, I think it's super valuable to have a board. I think it's super valuable to put yourself in a situation where you have third parties, um whether they're slightly or or reasonably financially motivated, meaning they have either an investment or maybe options, but they can give you independent feedback, and the types of individuals that um I like to be surrounded by and I think are motivating and motivational and are aspirational are folks that are really intelligent, maybe think in a slightly different fashion, um, so have a different way of making decisions, are very blunt, straight shooters, people that have built good businesses, whether they're directly correlative, like similar businesses or other businesses, but good business people and that are passionate. And inspiring. So I think um, I'll forget the name of the psychologist who provides the test, but there's people who you walk into a room with and you get energy from. And there's people who you walk into a room from with with and you you feel like they, they stole your energy. You feel like you got, you know, the marrow sucked out of your bones. The former, not the latter. People that are exciting, inspiring to be around. And generally from an entrepreneurial perspective, people that have been successful. So people use crass expressions like people that have gotten in the way of money or made money multiple times, but serial entrepreneurs, serial business founders, people that have made money in multiple situations across multiple market cycles, who figured out businesses in a variety of different um, environments are very, very uh, helpful to entrepreneurs because they have, they have experience, they have credibility um, and they allow you to pattern yourself after their behavior. So, just like I look for that personally and professionally, um, I would advise that as early as you can, um, and you don't want to dilute your time too much by having a big board that takes a lot of time, but picking an individual or a small subsegment of individuals that you can believe will be really helpful or good business people and will provide you good, tough, direct advice, including things you don't want to hear and other people won't tell you because you're, you're the founder and you're the most senior person. I would say those things are very valuable. And in lots of the businesses that we do invest in that are not institutionally backed and um, have very little or no capital, um, you you see entrepreneurs that have found those types of people. And whether it's in an official or an unofficial capacity, got them as as advisors or board members.
0: It's extremely useful advice. Ben, thank you so much for taking time to exchange with us and share your experience. We really appreciated the discussion and I'm sure that our listeners will too. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you found some wisdom and knowledge that you can apply during your next board meeting or more broadly in your business journey. If you like this conversation, please share it with your friends and colleagues and write a review on iTunes to help others discover the show. To find more episodes of the Boards Network podcast, go to boardsnetwork.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Boards Network for the show, at Philippe Nissen. And at Justine Huang 34 for our personal accounts.